Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. But we're going to take our time. This passage is too important. I think Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 is an incredibly important stretch of Scripture. That we need to understand the weapons that we've been given. Because Christians live in a wartime mentality. The paradox of the kingdom is that Jesus over and over in Old Testament and New talks about you have to go through this period of warfare that Jesus himself personally experienced in his own soul to get to this place of peace. That is a paradox. It's one of many. And the way that the New Testament talks about how we ought to live now in its entirety is that this is a war, but it's not being fought on the level of people to people. It's being fought in the heavenly places and all around us, which is kind of the same thing if you understand that concept. The devil. We've got all sorts of weird ideas of what the devil is. And churches go back and forward, back and forth between two extremes. One saying he's just a metaphorical figure that embodies evil, and evil is just this vague sense of badness that permeates our atmosphere. No, that's not true. He's actually a real being who rebelled against God in the heavenly places and brought a third of the angels who became demons with him. It's a little scary to talk about because we are in such a, our culture is so pragmatic. If we don't see it and can't touch it, we don't understand it and so we don't believe it. So it's a little bit tough to talk about the devil. The other extremity is that we make him into some weird caricature. I remember one of my siblings had a shirt growing up. I think we all wore it a couple times. It was a little pink, looked like a little pig guy standing on his hind feet and he had this pitchfork, and the shirt said, the devil made me do it. There's actually some theological truth to that, but I get this image of this little pig guy every time I think of the devil, and I have to like, we have to detangle ourselves from these images and ideas we have about Satan in order to get to what he really is and who he really is and what he's about. So I want to talk first this morning, and if you have your bulletin, you can follow along, you can fill in the blanks. Um, I want to talk first very, very briefly about his strategy for us. And then we're going to go into the passage. We're going to look at his schemes. Strategies. The first one is to disrupt our sanity and tranquility in Christ. He wants to disrupt our sanity and tranquility in Christ. Jesus came so that we have this, we might have this overwhelming overwhelming sense of shalom which is peace and wellness and goodness and inner tranquility that ought to be our normal mode of operation and satan wants to disrupt that he doesn't want you to have peace he doesn't want you to be sane he doesn't want you to have tranquility He wants you to be a train wreck. He doesn't want you to have a sense of momentum about your life. He doesn't want you to be excited about to get out of bed in the morning. 
He doesn't want you to have any momentum. He wants you to feel stalled. He wants you to feel despair. He wants you to feel anxious, depressed. That's where his goal is for each of us personally. Now, not everybody struggles with that. Some people in this room do. But others of you are like, nah, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm, I'm okay. I'm doing good there. He'll get you somewhere else. Don't worry. We'll get to it. The second thing that his goal is for us is to disrupt the unity of the church, which is the key to our spiritual power and effectiveness. This is something we've talked about a lot. This is so true, but it's so easy for me personally to get caught up into this subversive tactic that he has of disunity. I get pulled into that still. He's so tricky. And, but even Jesus said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And Satan knows that's true. So he's trying to divide us from one another in the church. And he's trying to divide churches. The irony of all the different denominations we have and all the different divisions we have with other churches is that they're usually about things that are supposed to unite us. One of the major things that divides us as a church is baptism. How, when, who, where. And that's the one, one of the things that's supposed to actually unite us together. Communion. What happens to the piece of bread when it goes in your mouth? Does it actually become something else? Does it just represent something spiritually? Does it, like, there's all sorts of divisions and denominations that have been divided from one another because of communion. The very thing that's supposed to symbolize our unity in Christ. Satan got in there. And he's using it to divide us. He's sly. Third thing is, his strategy is to disrupt the spread of the gospel. This is the message that brings life, healing, restoration, joy. And he's trying to disrupt that from getting out to other people. He does that in a multitude of ways. If you have your Bibles with you today, you can turn to Ephesians 6, and we're going to be looking at 10 through 13. I'll start reading in verse 10. Some of you asked uh, last week, I used the ESV translation, the English Standard Version. It's a good translation. There's a lot of good translations, though. Uh, we're not like militant about what type of Bible we, we read. They're all pretty good. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, starting with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Notice that our job is not to go beat 
Satan and the demons. Our job is to stand firm in the victory that Jesus has already won. If you ever played King of the Mountain, it's a fantastic game. You get all the mattresses in the house in the living room and you pile them up and then you put all the cushions of the couches on top of those and someone starts on top and then everyone else's job is to knock that person off the mountain. All you have to do if you're on top of the mountain is just stand there like, all right, bring it, bring it. I'm going to stand. Nobody is knocking me down from this. It's a fantastic game. It's a lot of fun. This would actually be a great room for it because the ceiling is so high. King of the mountain, it's a great game. The point is that Jesus has already won and put us on top of the mountain. And all he says is, you are going to be attacked viciously your entire life. We're going to talk about what attacks mean. And all you have to do is stand firm in where I've put you. Just stand firm. And don't let anyone knock you off that mountain. Stand firm. Jesus dealt the decisive blow to Satan on the cross and in the resurrection. He won. He already won. And he told Satan he was going to do it. Way back at the beginning in Genesis 3, he told God's talking to the serpent. This is an interesting conversation. And one of the things that he says to the serpent, who was, who was Satan, I believe, he said, this, you know, basically women are going to have children and one woman is going to have one child who you will strike his heel but he's going to deal a blow to your head. Yeah, you'll get him on the ankle, and he's going to give you a death blow to the head. And Jesus did that on the cross and in the resurrection. So our job is to stand firm in what Jesus has already accomplished. Abraham Karuvala says, Believers are not commanded to win victories in the spiritual warfare they engage in. Rather, they are only asked to stand, to stand in a victory that has already been won. He says again, four times in this passage, there's the picture of standing. 6.11, 6.13, twice, 6.14. This is the goal for believers engaged in spiritual warfare, to stand their ground, yielding nary an inch to evil. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. If you could peel back the layers of reality you would see that there is actually a vicious war happening around us in the spiritual realm. That's not just metaphorically speaking, that's real. In the book of Ezekiel, I think it's Daniel who's waiting for an answer from God to a prayer. And an angel was on his way to, to answer the prayer. And he said, I got caught up in the heavens. He was in a battle and I had to actually call the archangel to come get me out of it. And so I, I got here, sorry, I'm a little late. <laughs> Whoa, okay, that's interesting. God puts these little nuggets in Scripture just to show us, yeah, beyond this reality, if you could open it up like an envelope and see what's inside, there would be, you would see warfare, the spiritual realm happening all around us for our souls. And if you're keen to these things, you'll notice, if you're paying attention, that these attacks are getting more and more vicious. Because I think Satan knows the time is limited. 
And the closer you get to the end of a fight, like if you're ever watching a boxing match, if someone's losing that and he knows it's the last round and there's 30 seconds left, he's going he's to wail out on this guy with everything he has because he knows his time is limited. It's his last chance. I think that's kind of where we're at. The problem is we don't know who we're supposed to fight. So we demonize people. We demonize people in the church. We demonize people outside of the church. We demonize who, people who believe different things than us. That's not where the fight is. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, according to Paul in this passage. So if we're supposed to stand against the schemes of the devil, let's talk about the devil's schemes. Now last week, I talked about one dramatic example of this lady who was somehow overtaken, her personality was overtaken by, I guess, some type of demonic possession. I have no idea. It was very weird. I've only seen something like that maybe a couple times in my life, and that was the only time in the United States. It was just odd, and you don't see that very often. I mean, you see that a lot in the New Testament because one of the things that authorized Jesus as God that showed people that this really is God is that when he went into a dark place it became light and he made the darkness leave. So they were people who were possessed by demons and they were terrified of Jesus. The demons would talk to him and he'd be like, you got to leave that person. You're going to have to go. And they were scared. They did what he said. So Jesus, people were freaked out by that. They didn't know what to do with that. This power that is stronger than a whole legion of dark angels was walking amongst them and they didn't know what to do. We don't see that as much today, at least in our part of the world. And one of the reasons, I think, is because Satan knows that we're, you know, kind of literalists, where we think concretely, we don't like to think in the abstract very much for a lot of reasons. And so he's not going to do things that crazy. He's subtle. He doesn't want to be that obvious. Satan does not care if you believe in him or not. <laughs> He'd prefer you don't. Like people who are Satan worshipers, and we have these silly cults, so they're, they're like Satan worshipers, and have this strange idea that Satan likes them. He's excited that he, they're helping him. He could not care less. He pays them no mind. He just doesn't care. He's like, we're not going to be friends. <laughs> There's a great line at the end of The Usual Suspects, which is a 90s movie. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. That's probably more like it. That's probably more along the lines of what we see as spiritual warfare today. Here's what we know about Satan. He's an incredibly intelligent being with centuries of experience honing his craft He'll get you before you even realize he's got you. You'll allow yourself to think about something before you even realize where it came from. He'll bring you further down a path than you ever wanted to go when you just wanted to flirt with an idea and all of a sudden you're in a trap. He's subversive and he's been doing it for a long time. He's been experimenting and playing with this, and he knows how to get us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows the open doors. He knows the little compromises, the ways we let him in. And he fights dirty. He's not fair. 
And he goes after all of us. He goes after our kids. He goes after our friends. He goes after our family. He doesn't fight fair. But he's predictable. And if we're familiar with his schemes, we'll know how to stand against them. That's why today we're going to talk a lot about a scheme so you don't have this weird caricature of Satan running around poking you in the behind with a pitchfork or something. You need to, we need to have a little bit more sophisticated understanding of what he does. The, the, the teaching in the church on Satan is embarrassingly minimal and childish. We've got to be street smart if we're going to survive this. We have to be. So we can't be embarrassed about this subject. We've got to understand what he's up to. Now, I'm not going to be able to cover it exhaustively, so I want to recommend a couple books. Now, when I recommend books, I, you know, some people come up to me and they're just like, I'm just not a reader, so I'm, not, I'm probably never going to read anything you recommend, but I'm, I'm listening. That's probably not good enough. You, you probably should be a reader. Because the way that God communicates to us is through Scripture. And the way that He communicates to our, us in a way that helps us understand Scripture better is people that He's gifted in the ways of teaching. And a lot of gifted Bible teachers are writing books. Now, I would never send you to the bookstore and just, I would never say, go to the Christian section and find a book, and any one of those books will be good to read. That's not true. Some of the worst books that you could possibly read about God are found in the Christian section written by Christians at the bookstore. There are some really bad books. There's some really bad material out there. So part of my job, I feel like, is to help you see through some of the fluff or some of the unhelpful things so what are helpful good books to read? Because a good book makes you want to read Scripture more and makes you understand Scripture more. So part of my gig is to help you find some of these books. I'm going to share three books that have been really helpful in this area. And if you're not a reader, it's a really good thing to become a reader. Even if that means you're like, for some books I have to read one page out loud to myself slowly every day. Just one page a day and that's enough. Start with five minutes or get books on audio, audio, whatever you have to do. I read, uh, or I, the latest statistic I heard was we have like 65,000 thoughts a day. 65,000 thoughts a day as a human being. I have no idea how they measured that. But most of them, one, are negative. And then 99% of those are the same thoughts. You know how boring life is? If you think the same thoughts every single day. You, are, you get so stale. You have to think new, informed thoughts about God. That's how we grow. If you don't like it, I don't know what to tell you. That's how it works. All right, so here are some good ways to put new, informed, healthy thoughts in your mind about this spiritual warfare. This one's called Satan and His Kingdom. I'm going to refer to this later. This is by Dennis McCallum. And by the way, if you have questions about this, um, I'm actually going to be available after service today to answer questions if you have any questions about what we're talking about or you want to see these books up close in person, this is the first one, Satan and His Kingdom by Dennis McCallum. This is very accessible, very readable, and very powerful, very accurate. It's got high marks from the people that I think really matter that judge these types of things. It's a great book, very, very helpful. The next one is from a man that has surpassed 
who used to be my favorite author, John Owen. John Owen was a Puritan author, and he's really, really great. But I realized one day that there, I'm never not reading C.S. Lewis. He, I'm always reading something by C.S. Lewis, always. And this is a good one, the Screwtape Letters. Uh, it's a fictional account of this uncle that has this conversation by writing back and forth. He's like a pen pal with his nephew. And obviously, it, it's fiction, so obviously it's not meant to be read literally, but it will give you some keen insight to the ways that maybe Satan goes about spiritual warfare. It's easy to read. You probably do have to read it a little more slowly because the way that C.S. Lewis thinks, uh, there's hardly anybody that thinks the way that he does, so he's kind of hard to follow because he's just so smart. But it's fascinating and it's interesting, and this is definitely worth a read, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Finally, did you guys have your coffee? Did you guys drink coffee this morning? Uh, the Screwtape Letters. Wait, did you ask what's the name of it? Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. The screw tape letters. It's a word that it doesn't exist. He made it up. Screw tape. It's Uncle Screw Tape is his name. It's very odd. This is very odd. <laughs> but I, I like this. I like this back and forth. All right, this is this is the last one. All right. This book, this book is uh, you can also lift weights with this book. It's The Christian in Complete Armor by William Gurnall. It's got a J.C. Ryle, if you know anything about him, he's a, he was definitely a manly man Christian, a very scary individual. Um, he wrote a, a, an introduction to this book. It's uh, very thick, it's very dense, it's very small writing, it's very hard to, to read. And I bring it up because some of you like a challenge, some of you like pushing yourself in this area. Um, I'm not finished with this, but there, every page I've read so far, there's a zinger. And this is one of those books you have to read out loud slowly. Now, here's the deal. It's actually even, yeah, it, it's, it's insane. Um, this is for those of you that want to be challenged and have a 10-year reading project. This is probably one of those books. Um, this book is also specifically about this passage. It's uh, Ephesians 6. 10 through 20. So don't give me a hard time if I spend a couple of extra weeks on this because he wrote this book about this passage, the Christian in complete armor. It's funny when people say, I read that passage and I know it already. I've got everything you can get out of that. Really? This is 11 verses. 11 verses. You probably haven't yet. I tell people that tell me the Bible's boring. There are no boring Bibles. There are boring people. Your thinking is limited if, you're, if you think the Bible's boring. And I'm speaking to myself on that because half the time that's how I feel. I want to talk about Satan's schemes. And after you're familiar with these, we're going to discuss the weapons that God provides for us to have victory over these schemes. But don't underestimate just being familiar with them. Don't underestimate just knowing what he's up to because that is half the, the battle. We're going to share three today and I'm only going to talk about one of them because we're going to be running out of time. We're going to come back to the next two next week. And again, these aren't exhaustive. There are certain schemes that I left out like intimidation, 
when you decide to get serious about living as a disciple of Jesus, there will be nightmares. There will be different ways of you feeling intimidated. Satan is menacing. He knows how to get to you. He knows what you're afraid of. He's not the boogeyman, but he's an intelligent being that knows how to slow us down when we're passionate about something, especially Jesus. We're not going to talk about diversion, which means that you give more energy and time to lesser important things than the kingdom. We're going to talk about three schemes that he's pretty consistent with. And you can write these three down, and then we're going to focus on the first. He accuses. Two, he seduces. We're going to talk about that next week, and we are going to keep it PG. It's because it's, he seduces in a, in a variety of ways. And three, he divides. Let's talk about he accuses. That's where we'll land today. Revelation 12.10, if you want to write that down somewhere, uh, the second half of it says, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan accuses us to ourselves. He accuses us to God. He accuses God to us. He's always accusing. It's what he does. He's making false accusations. Now, I want to make this tangible, so I'm going to read some ways that he does that. This is out of this book, Satan and His Kingdom, by Dennis McCallum. And I, I just want you to, to begin to recognize what he sounds like. Because one of these will probably resonate with each of you. Not all of them. But at least one of these will hit home. Here's one thing he might say. Here's one way he might sound. God is continually looking down at you in disappointment or even disgust. He is incredulous that you could be so unfaithful, selfish, and sinful. It's a small wonder he hasn't turned his back on you. He's probably lining you up for a crushing punishment of some kind. Yeah, you're so unfaithful. You're not consistent in reading the Bible. You don't really pray. You don't really enjoy going to church. You just go through the motions. He's probably going to embarrass you somehow publicly. He's probably going to humiliate you. He's probably going to make your life fall apart. He's just not happy with you. Who would be? You know, you're not a good disciple. You just go through the motions of life. You're not very effective. You're not doing anything for the kingdom. How about this one? Christians are dangerous and cannot be trusted. Opening up to them would be extremely foolish. They're just waiting for a chance to judge you ferociously. You have to tell them what they want to hear and never let them know how badly you're messing up. Yours is a life committed to projecting a pretend version of you because you can't actually really let other people know the real you or what you're really struggling with. It's not worth it. Because everyone will let you down. They'll judge you. It'll get out. How about this? Your efforts to serve God by sharing your faith, which we want to be more and more comfortable with doing that. Your efforts to serve God by sharing your faith are doomed to failure. 
First, nobody wants to hear this, and they'll feel offended when you bring it up. Besides, your incompetence makes it even less likely that anyone would even listen. The person will probably come up with advanced questions you can't answer. And not only will you look stupid, you'll make Jesus look stupid. You'd be better off waiting until you're more prepared. Oof. You need a little bit more training before you start talking to people about Jesus because what if you go up against a physic? Like some guy that, a physics professor that, like this next Einstein that starts telling you what, how he knows exactly how the universe started and why the Bible is a fairy tale. They've documented for years all the place where it seems the Bible doesn't align and collaborate with itself. They, you're going to run into some brilliant person. Every person you talk to has, going to been, has been thinking about this for years. And if you can't answer all these questions, you better not talk about it yet. You know where the real power is? Not being able to, the debates and stuff, it's hard for me to watch those because it feels like we're missing the point. It was really difficult watching. Um, anyways, it's really hard for me to watch some of these scientific debates because we're arguing things that sometimes they don't matter that much. What would be better if you could say, yeah, okay, you, you've obviously done a lot of research there. That's awesome. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for my life. Let me tell you how he's changed me. Let me tell you why I'm not at home in bed just scared to go out and live. Why I'm not as depressed as I used to be. Why I don't feel despair anymore. Why I have friends that I know that love me and I love them. You know, and we hit some skids. And we're still committed to each other. This is the church. Let me tell you about people who step in when I need meals or stuff or resources or help in some way. You don't have to have all these scientific answers. You have to be able to share what God is currently doing in your life. That's where the power is at. By the power of our testimony is where we will win. So you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to go through all this training. Just talk about what Jesus is doing in your life. If you have to convince someone with your scholarly effort, they're probably not ready to hear it anyways. And it's probably wasted time. What about this one? When you feel depressed and far from God, the only solution is to get alone by yourself for a good while. You don't need to go hang out with other Christians as much as you need to relax and maybe watch Netflix. I'm feeling really down. I just need to watch a bunch of videos. That's easy for me to get into. When I'm exhausted and down, depressed for whatever reason, I have nothing left, I just want to lay on the bed and watch goofy YouTube videos about people camping by themselves. I love those videos. There's a place for that. But that's not how we get re-energized for life. That's not what pulls us out of depression. Being alone, you don't find yourself alone. You find yourself in community with other believers. You don't find yourself hiking Europe by yourself. That's a lie. You find yourself deeply committed, involved in a community.
community of Christ followers. They bring things out of you that nobody else does. C.S. Lewis talks about one of his friends that died, and he said, when he died, a piece of me died because no one will ever make me laugh or smile or smirk the way that he did. Part of myself went with him. That's how we were designed to be all who God made us to be, together in community, not isolated, not watching a video, but with others. What about this one? It looks like this moral problem you have is never going to change. You might as well decide how you're going to manage your existence as a lifelong screw-up in this area. God has already shown he isn't going to help, so give it up. Yeah, this issue that you have, you're never going to have real victory over it. God has already proven that he doesn't have the power to get you through this or to change you in any real ways. You're going to have to learn to manage it the rest of your life and just make believe and just pretend that you've got your stuff together. You're a lie. That's accusation. That's accusing God and it's accusing you. Prayer isn't working. It's probably because of your lack of faith or maybe God refuses to answer because you're so irregular in prayer. Maybe he just doesn't care. Whatever the case, it feels more and more ridiculous to go on pretending you believe in this. Shame, shame, shame. You don't pray enough. You don't pray good enough. There's other people that pray far better than you. God's not going to do anything for you because you don't talk to him. And it, prayer doesn't actually work. It's just kind of a side thing we do just to show that we do believe in God, so we're supposed to do this. But you don't, it's not really effective. I mean, it doesn't really do anything. God doesn't actually move when you ask him to. Two more. There was that time when God was blessing your life. I'll give him that. But that was a long time ago. Something has gone terribly wrong. You can't feel his presence like you could then. He doesn't bless you like he did then. It could well be that you've been dealt out of the game. God has moved on to others who are more deserving. You used to be so passionate about Jesus. Do you remember that? You used to be so fired up for Jesus. Now look at you. You got... You're crawling into church every Sunday. You're limping from Sunday to Sunday. You don't have the fire that you used to. By the way, that's probably good because you're not depending on a feeling to be a disciple. You're flying by the instruments instead of sight at that point. That's a good place to be. You have to get through that. That's part of the growth process. So if you're not feeling as fired up as you used to, don't complain about that. That means God's entrusting you with more faith to believe that he's real even when you don't feel it, even when you don't feel passionate about it. And finally, if you haven't got, if you've gotten through all of those, the last one, if you've gotten through all those without feeling like, yeah, I can relate to that, I've heard that before, this one will get you. If you keep listening to this talk about surrendering all for God, you're going to miss incredible opportunities that may never come again. Your career's going to suffer irreversibly, or you're going to miss the love of your life. You're going to become a fanatic and a weirdo. You're on the verge of robbing yourself of real happiness. You've got to take a more moderate position in spiritual matters. Now, we're not talking about denying God here. Just more of a sense of balance in your life. Ugh. I hate that word. 
I hate that word, balance. Is that what Jesus invited people to? Come follow me if it's, if it's a good time. Like, if you want to wait and, like, until things are better with the business, the fishing business, Peter, you can do that. I'll come back. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Men used to leave everything behind to follow him. Women used to leave their homes and businesses to follow him. That doesn't mean that we leave our places of work. It means we engage in our places of work as disciples of Jesus now. As our primary goal and position in life. For me, the accusation is, a, is different in different ways. Every Sunday, the accusation is, this sermon is terrible. <laughs> it's dry. Everybody knows this stuff. You're not a good communicator. You're going to be anxious again, and you're going to have a panic attack again like you used to. This is dull. This is lifeless. You didn't spend enough time doing this. It's not going to be helpful. You should just quit ministry. And my job is to stand firm and say, I'm not agreeing with you on that. Because Jesus put me here for now. And as long as he puts me here, every Sunday I'm going to be here. I don't plan on going anywhere. I'm here preaching scripture. This is what God made me to do. Shut up. I don't need to hear it. And I have to say that in other areas of my life too. And you do too. You need to be balanced and moderate. Sure, in everything but following Jesus. You're not ready to share your faith. What if they ask something difficult? What if they do? I don't need to be an encyclopedia. I don't need to be a physics professor to be able to answer questions about what God has done for me personally. You used to be more passionate. Yeah, I did. Now the passion is different. It runs deeper. It's not at the surface as much, but it's there. It's just banked. You have to tell him no. You have to not agree with him. And then say what's true. And that's part of the weapons that God has given us in Christ. What does the accusation sound like to you? What's yours? This week, what I want you to do is begin paying attention when you hear that subtle little accusatory voice. All I want you to do is pay attention where it's coming from. Learn to recognize it. Be self-aware. Be watchful. And then stand firm in the faith that you are God's and he is yours. Next week we'll get into he seduces and he divides and maybe we'll get into some of the, the weapons. But like I said, you will go a long way in just being able to recognize his schemes. Don't be naive about his schemes. Let's be smart about it. I'll pray for us and then Titch is going to lead us in communion. Father, thank you that you don't leave it up to us to, to beat up Satan spiritually. Um, you call us to know what he's about, know what he wants to do, and know how he does it. And then to depend on you 
to strengthen us to be able to stand just like everything else. Spiritual warfare, like everything, is to be done in your strength, in your might, in your power, not ours. Divine opposition requires divine power. Teach us. As we go out this week, help us to recognize the subtle, subversive, quiet, squirmy, accusatory voice of our enemy. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.